another episode of Data Science at Home podcast. I'm your host, Francesco, and uh, I am with Chiara Tonini from London. Hi, Chiara, how are you doing? Very well, thank you. Nice to be here. Well, welcome everyone to The Dark Side of AI. This is episode four, and uh, the title of today's episode is Bias in the Machine. Thank you for listening to Data Science at Home podcast with Francesco Gadaletta. You are about to get cutting edge insights from the people who are reshaping the world of technology with machine learning, data science, and artificial intelligence. It's time for Data Science at Home. Welcome to the show. So Francesco, today we are starting with an infuriating discussion. Are you ready to be angry? <laughs> yeah, sure. Is this about Brexit? Uh, no, we don't talk about that. So in 1986, the New York City's Rockefeller University conducted a study on breast and uterine cancers and their link to obesity. Like in all clinical trials up to that point, the subject of the study were all men. So Francesco, do you see a problem with this approach? Hmm, no problem at all, as long as those men had a perfectly healthy uterus. Yeah, right. So in medicine, up to the end of the 20th century... Medical studies and clinical trials were conducted on men. Medicine dosage and therapy calculated on men, and by the way, white men. The female body has historically been considered an exception or variation of the male body. Hmm, like Eve coming from Adam's rib? I thought we were past that. Yeah, right. So when the female body has been under analysis, the focus was always just on the difference between it and the male body, the so-called bikini approach. The reproductive organs are different, therefore we study those and those only. For a long time, medicine assumed that this was the only difference. Oh, good. Yeah, so this has led to a hugely harmful fallout across society. Because women had reproductive organs, they should therefore reproduce and all else about them was deemed uninteresting. Still today, a woman without children somehow is considered to have betrayed her biological destiny. This somehow does not apply to a man without children who also has reproductive organs. Well, so this is an example of a very specific type of bias in medicine regarding clinical trials and medical studies that is not only harmful for the purpose of these studies, but has ripple effects in all of society. Only in the 2010s, a serious conversation has started about the damage caused by not including women in clinical trials. There are many, many examples which we list in the references for this episode. Sure, give me one. For example, cardiovascular disease is considered a male disease. They even call it the widower. Studies are conducted on male samples. But it turns out the symptoms of a heart attack, especially the ones leading up to one, are different in women. This led to doctors not recognizing or dismissing the early symptoms in women. I was reading that uh, women are also subject to chronic pain much more than men. For example, migraines and pain related to endometriosis. But there is extensive evidence now of doctors dismissing women's pain as either imaginary or inevitable, like it is a normal state of being and does not need a cure at all. Exactly. The failure of the medical community as a whole to recognize this very obvious bias up to the 21st century is an example of how insidious the problem of bias is. And it is indeed. So let me break down the problem of bias here. There are three fundamental types of bias. 
In fact, we usually deal with stochastic drift. When you train your model on a data set and you validate the model on a split of the training set called the testing set. Now, when you apply your model out in the world on unseen observations, in fact, the model's predictions will be biased because the training set was too specific. The second type of bias is the bias in the model itself that is usually introduced by you know, the data scientist's choice of the parameters of the model. And the third is the bias in the training sample. You know, people put training samples together and people have a certain culture, experience, background, sometimes even prejudice. As we will see today, this is the most dangerous and subtle of the three. And uh, that's why we're going to talk about this in particular today. So bias is a warping of our understanding of reality. We see reality through the lens of our experience in our culture. The origin of bias can date back to traditions going back centuries and is so ingrained in our way of thinking that we don't even see it anymore. And let me add that when it comes to machine learning, we see reality through the lens of data. <laughs> bias is everywhere and we could spend hours and hours talking about it. It is really complicated. It's about to become more complicated. Of course, if I know you. So let's throw artificial intelligence in the mix. You know, that was a happier time when these sentences didn't really fill me with a sense of dread. Yeah, right. Let's talk about ImageNet. ImageNet is an online database of over 14 million photos, compiled more than a decade ago at Stanford University. It's been used to train machine learning algorithms for image recognition and computer vision and played an important role in the rise of deep learning. We've all played with it, right? The cats and dog classifiers when learning TensorFlow, for example. Hmm. Well, ImageNet, in fact, has been a critical asset for computer vision research. And there was an annual international competition a few years ago to create algorithms that could most accurately label subsets of images. And uh, in 2012, a team from the University of Toronto used a convolutional neural network to handily win the top prize. That moment is widely considered a turning point in the development of contemporary AI, at least when it comes to computer vision. The final year of the ImageNet competition was 2017, if I remember well, and the accuracy in classifying objects in the limited subset had risen from 71% to, well, 97%. But wow. that subset did not include the person category where the accuracy was much lower. ImageNet contained photos of thousands or millions of people with labels. The labels included straightforward cases like teacher, dancer, and plumber, as well as highly charged labels like failure, loser, and slut, slowly woman, trollop. Uh -oh. Yeah. Then, then ImageNet Roulette was created. It, it was an art project by an artist called Trevor Paglin and a Microsoft researcher named Kate Crawford. It was a digital art project where you could upload your photo and let the classifier identify you based on the labels of the database. Imagine how well that went. <laughs> I bet it didn't work. Of course, it didn't work. Random people were classified as orphans or non-smoker or alcoholic. Somebody with glasses was, was classified as nerd. 
Of course. A guy named Tabong Kima, a 24-year-old African-American, was classified as offender and wrongdoer. And there it is. Yes. Quote from Trevor Paglen. We want to show how layers of bias and racism and misogyny move from one system to the next. The point is to let people see the work that is being done behind the scenes, to see how we are being processed and categorized all the time. Let me put a bit of history in the equation. The ImageNet labels were in fact applied by thousands of unknown people, most likely in the United States, who were hired by the team from Stanford and uh, were working through the crowdsourcing service Amazon Mechanical Turk. Now, they earned pennies for each photo they labeled, churning through hundreds of labels an hour. Such labels were not verified in any way. And so if a labeler thought someone looks shady, well, this label is just a result of their prejudice, but has no basis in reality. And as they built it, biases were baked into the database. Paglen quote again, the way we classify images is a product of our worldview, he said. Any kind of classification system is always going to reflect the values of the person doing the classifying. They define what a loser looks like and a slut and a wrongdoer. The labels originally came from another sprawling collection of data called WordNet, a kind of conceptual dictionary for machines built by researchers at Princeton University in the 80s. But with these inflammatory labels included, the Stanford researchers may not have realized what they were doing. Yeah, what is happening here is the transferring of bias from one system to the next. Tech jobs in past decades, but still today, unfortunately, predominantly go to white males from a very narrow social class. Inevitably, they imprint the technology with their worldview. So their algorithms learn from them that a person of color is a criminal and a woman with a certain look is a slut. I'm not saying they do it on purpose, but the lack of diversity in the tech industry translates into a narrower view of, of the world, which has real consequences in the quality of AI systems. Well, diversity in tech teams is often framed as an, an equality issue, which of course it is. But there are enormous advantages, I believe. It, allows to create that cognitive diversity that will reflect into superior products or services. I also believe this is an ongoing problem. In uh, recent months, researchers have shown that face recognition services from companies like Amazon, Microsoft, or IBM can be biased against women and people of color. So Crawford and Paglen argue this. In many narratives around AI, it is assumed that ongoing technical improvements will resolve all the problems and limitations. But what if the opposite is true? What if the challenge of getting computers to describe what they see will always be a problem? The automated interpretation of images is an inherently social and political project rather than a purely technical one. Understanding the politics within AI systems matters more than ever as they are quickly moving into the architecture of social institutions, deciding whom to interview for a job, which students are paying attention in class, which suspects to arrest, and much else. Well, you're using the words interpretation of images here, as opposed to description or classification. Certain images depict something concrete with an objective reality, like an apple, for example. 
but other images, not so much. So ImageNet contains images only corresponding to nouns, not verbs, for example. Noun categories such as apple are well-defined, but not all nouns are created equal. Linguist George Lakoff points out that the concept of an apple is more, quote, nouny than the concept of light, which in turn is more nouny or concrete than the concept of health, for example. Nouns occupy various places on an axis from concrete to abstract and from descriptive to judgmental. The images corresponding to these nouns become more and more ambiguous. These gradients have been completely erased in the logic of ImageNet. Everything is flattened out and pinned to a label. The results can be problematic, illogical and cruel, especially when it comes to labels applied to people. So when an image is interpreted as drug addict, crazy, hypocrite, spinster, schizophrenic, mulatto, redneck, etc., well, this is not an objective description of reality. It's just somebody's worldview coming to the surface. The selection of images for these categories skews the meaning in ways that are gendered, racialized, ableist, ageist. ImageNet is an object lesson in what happens when people are categorized like objects. And this practice has only become more common in recent years, often inside the big AI companies where there's no way for outsiders to see how images are being ordered and classified. So the bizarre thing about these systems is that they remind of the early 20th century criminologists like Lombroso or phrenologists, including Nazi scientists and physiognomy in general. This was a discipline founded on the assumption that there is a relationship between an image of a person and the character of that person. Like if you are a murderer or a Jew, the shape of your head, for instance, will tell. And by being in Belgium, I should definitely mention René Magritte. In reaction to these ideas, he produced that famous painting of the pipe with the tag, this is not a pipe. Yes. You know that famous photograph of the soldier kissing the nurse at the end of the Second World War? Mm -hmm. That nurse came public about it when she was 90 years old and told the story of how this total stranger in the street had grabbed her and kissed her. So this is a picture of sexual harassment. And knowing that, it doesn't seem romantic anymore. No, not romantic at all. So the point is that images do not describe themselves. This is a feature that us artists have explored for centuries. We see those images differently when we see how they're labeled. The correspondence between image, label, and, and referent is fluid. What's more, those relations can change over time as the cultural context of an image shifts and can mean different things depending on who looks and where they are located. Images are open to interpretation and reinterpretation. Entire subfields of philosophy, art history, and media theory are dedicated to teasing out all the nuances of the unstable relationship between images and meanings. The common myth of AI and the data that it draws on is that they are objectively and scientifically classifying the world, but it's not true. Everywhere there is politics, ideology, prejudices, and all of the subjective stuff of history. Well, when we survey the most widely used training sets, we find that this is the rule rather than the exception. Training sets are the foundation on which contemporary machine learning systems are built. They are central to how AI systems recognize and interpret the world around us. 
By looking at the construction of these training sets and uh, the underlying structures, we discover many unquestioned assumptions that are shaky and skewed. These assumptions inform the way AI systems work and of course fail to this day. And the impenetrability of the algorithms, the impossibility of reconstructing the decision-making of a neural network, for example, hides the bias farther away from scrutiny. When an algorithm is a black box, like neural networks, for example, and you can't look inside, well, there's no way of analyzing its bias. And, and the skewness and bias of these algorithms have real effects in society. The more you use AI in the judicial system, in medicine, in the job market, in security system based on facial recognition, the list goes on and on. So last year, Google unveiled BERT, Bidirectional Encoder Representations for Transformers. It's an AI system that learns to talk. It's a natural language processing engine to generate written or spoken language. And indeed, we have an episode about that, episode 84, titled More Powerful Deep Learning with Transformers, in which we show how methods like BERT work. So BERT is trained from lots and lots of digitized information as varied as old books, Wikipedia entries, news articles, and so on. Decades and even centuries of biases, along with a few new ones, are baked into all the material. So for instance, BERT is extremely sexist. It associates with male almost all professions and all positive attributes except for mom. BERT is widely used in industry and academia. For example, it is used to interpret news headlines automatically. It is even used for Google search engine. Try Googling CEO, for example, and you get out a gallery of images of old white men. That's very true. Well, such a pervasive and flawed AI system can in fact propagate inequality at scale and it's super dangerous because it's subtle, especially in industry query results will not be tested and examined for bias. AI is a black box, we all know that, and results are taken at face value. There are many cases of algorithm-based discrimination in the job market, for example. Targeting candidates for tech jobs, for instance, may be done by algorithms that will not recognize women as potential candidates. Therefore, they will not be exposed to as many job ads as men do or automated HR systems will rank them lower for the same resume and screen them out by principle. Yes, exactly. Or in the US, for example, algorithms are used to calculate bail. The majority of the prison population in the US is composed of people of color as a result of a systemic bias that goes back centuries. An algorithm learns that a person of color is more likely to commit a crime, is more likely to not be able to afford bail, is more likely to violate parole, Therefore, people of color will receive harsher punishments for the same crime. This amplifies an old inequality at scale. So I guess, Chiara, we have a message to all data scientists here. Yeah. Question everything. Never take predictions of your models at face value. Always question how your training samples have been put together, who put them together, when, and in what context. Always remember that your model produces an interpretation of reality, not a faithful depiction. To conclude, treat reality responsibly. This was the last episode of the mini-series The Dark Side of AI. 
Chiara and I have truly enjoyed sharing with you some of the biggest concerns about privacy when it comes to machine learning and data science. We hope to see you back next year. Don't forget to join the conversation on our Discord channel reported in the show notes of this episode. And so come visit us on datascienceathome.com. Thanks, everyone. You've been listening to Data Science at Home podcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean to get new fresh episodes. For more, please follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or visit our website at datascienceathome.com.